Welcome to episode 92 of Africa, Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oladji. Our guest today is Dr. Gabo Chipande, who recently defended his PhD dissertation in African history at Michigan State University, entitled Chipolo Polo, A Political and Social History of Football, or Soccer, in Zambia, 1940s to 1994. His pioneering study received funding from various sources, including the FIFA Avalanche Research Scholarship. Chipande has presented at academic conferences in Africa and North America and is a member of the Zambezi Studies Association in the USA and is an advisory board member of the Football Scholars Forum at footballscholars.org. Prior to coming to Michigan State, he earned master's and bachelor degrees in sports science from the Norwegian School of Sports Science in Oslo and a secondary school teacher's diploma from Nkrumah Teachers College in Zambia. He spent several years as a secondary school teacher in Zambia, teaching history and physical education, and also worked for several years in sport for development projects in Zambia, in South Africa, and in Norway. Most recently, before becoming a graduate student, he worked for the Supreme Council for Sport in Africa, Zone 6, in its head office in Botswana. Welcome, Igabwa. Thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure for me to be here. Botswana, I heard you give a wonderful paper on this topic of uh, the history of, of soccer or football in Zambia there at the uh, Southern African uh, Historical uh, Society Conference. Can you just tell the listeners how you became an historian, a scholar of sport in Zambia? Oh, great. That's a good question. Um, I grew up uh, in Zambia, uh, in Central Province, um, about 25 kilometers uh, east of a small town called uh, Kabwe, formerly known as Broken Hill. And uh, I went uh, to St. Paul Secondary School, um, uh, which is just within uh, the rural areas of Kabwe. And then uh, later I went to Nkrumah Teachers College, where, um, of course, I, I had very, very good teachers um, of history at uh, St. Paul Secondary School. I remember my late uh, teacher, uh, Mr. Nali, who kind of inspired me, and I looked up to him, and um, I think uh, that made me uh, take history as my major teaching course um, at Nkrumah Teachers College and physical education as my minor teaching course. And then uh, when I graduated from Nkrumah Teachers College, then um, I was posted to teach um, at a girls' uh, Catholic secondary school in the southern province called uh, St. Joseph Secondary School, where I taught for about three years. And thereafter, I was transferred, uh, or I asked for a transfer to go to Kito Boys High School because St. Joseph's was in the rural areas. So I wanted to move to an urban area to, to experience a bit of urban life. And so I taught at Kito Boys High School for a year and, uh, and then moved on um, uh, to sports for development projects that I got involved in. So that is how um, I, I became a teacher of, of, of history and, and, and at the same time very interested in, um, in sports. And in your dissertation, which you and I worked a lot on for the past several years, you write something quite interesting at the beginning, that it is remarkable that the Copper Belt in particular, one of the most intensively researched areas in all of Africa, until you started your project, had not yet produced any major academic study of sport. 
So can you please tell the listeners about your fascinating work on football, on politics and social change in colonial and post-colonial Zambia? And maybe also for those who aren't uh, so well versed in the topic, also try to connect it to lessons that it may have for the broader history of your country. The Copper Belt emerged as the hub of the Zambian economy in the 1920s with the copper mines emerging there. And later on uh, in the 1930s, the British uh, government supported the development of the the Rhodes Livingstone Institute that conducted a lot of um, uh, social uh, urban anthropological work and uh, making actually Zambia one of the most studied areas uh, in the region. I noticed that actually most of this great work brings out a lot of um, experiences of urbanizing Africans uh, as they are coming to work in, in the copper belt mines. But this rich scholarship rather misses out on the great experience that um, urbanizing Africans had uh, in terms of uh, their leisure activities, particularly football. And so uh, my work on uh, football in Zambia brings out, you know, the complex relationship between uh, football culture and politics in Zambia from the 1940s uh, to the mid-1990s, where I look at um, the rise and development of African clubs, competitions, players and personalities, and connect with everyday lives of um, ordinary local people, predominantly in the urban areas. I look at how urbanized Africans appropriated the game from the mining and colonial authorities starting from the, 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 the 1940s and how they owned the game and how actually uh, later on, um, particularly after the 1935 and 1940 Copper Belt uh, strikes, the mining and colonial authorities um, attempted to use the game um, kind of as a tool for controlling urbanizing Africans. These welfare uh, centers were started, uh, were started as early as the, 19, the late uh, 1930s, but they were really intensified in the 1940s because then the, the authorities, the colonial and mining authorities, uh, kind of uh, realized that um, there, might be, there was need probably for maybe an ideological approach to, you know, colonial rule. They'd been uh, rather scared by the strikes. And uh, that's correct, yes. yes. I look at how actually Af- Africans or the local people or urbanizing Africans uh, took this opportunity and used it to demand for more resources uh, to support, you know, the development of sports and, and other activities within their, their communities. And at the same time, they, they, they used this, uh, these welfare schemes and the sports structures that, that were developed as an opportunity also to challenge mostly discriminatory colonial policies. So then moving to the post-colonial period, uh, after independence uh, in 1964, the first uh, president of Zambia, uh, Kenneth Kaunda, who had been a football player himself, a soccer player, and Rifali, and a serious enthusiast of the game himself, learned from his former colonizers, and he attempted to use uh, the game for political propaganda to kind of control the people and use it to seek recognition in the country and, and, and in the continent as a whole. And I, I also look at how uh, the local people did not just, you know, follow his, uh, his interests, but uh, resisted in many ways and, and used the game to challenge his authority.
and, and, and to retain significant control of the development of the game itself. How uh, the local people themselves enjoyed the game and how they developed uh, clubs and uh, supporters clubs and, uh, and, and how women also got involved in the football fever that kind of gripped the whole nation. Oh, so football can be a great passion. It can be fun, as you say, and but it can also be a serious business. And um, in your work, you've also, to my mind, very deftly examined the political economy of, of Zambian soccer, uh, the money, investment. After all, the copper belt, what was the copper belt but an area of very heavy uh, colonial investment to extract minerals, to create capital and... Um, and, so, and you've mentioned the way in which Kaunda uh, deployed sport as a sort of a nation-building tool yes. and also perhaps for his own political purposes. Can you explain the shifting interests of, of uh, powerful structures, of companies and governments in the game, how this shifted over time? Actually, the, the, this political economy, the game started in the colonial era where the colonial authorities towards independence decided to influence or, and, and, and the mining companies together with the colonial authorities decided to use the game as a way of, you know, in a way also making them happy and controlling them. Mining companies towards the middle of the 1960s, as we are going towards independence, already started kind of uh, competing in a way of uh, investing in, in the game, competing in the sense that the mining company with the best football club or the winning or the dominant football club kind of projected itself as, you know, the most organized, the most structured and kind of as a way of, of marketing the, the mine itself. So this continued in the post-colonial period with President Kaunda's nationalization of the major uh, companies in the country, particularly the mines, and not only the mines, but also other uh, companies in Lusaka. Uh, and he sort of nationalized the national football team too. At your defense, you had this wonderful photograph of Kaunda's team, sort of the cabinet, all in soccer kit. That's correct. Looking, That's correct. looking very athletic. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So he, he, he even had a cabinet football team, which he regularly featured in himself as well. And they played against select you know, teams, maybe a team of mayors or a team of retired uh, football players. And they used this as kind of a way to showcase, uh, firstly, to connect, to show that they, you know, they're, they're able to connect with the, the masses and at the same time also enjoy the game and relax themselves. And, and, and as you indicated, uh, Professor Lim, um, even the national team was kind of uh, nicknamed after Kaunda himself as the KK11. With the passing of, of the Mulungushi and the Matero economic re reforms that led to the nationalization of the major uh, companies, including the mines in Zambia, then Kaunda himself kind of who was even the head of all uh, parastatal corporations uh, ensured that uh, the newly nationalized corporations really invested in the development of the game, uh, the grassroots development of the game, and also invested a lot in the national team itself and, and, and identified himself with the national team and even the party and its government uh, after the, the declaration of a one-party state in 1972. So then the party and its government kind of saw football 
as a very important uh, game that kind of they felt uh, was wor worth identifying with. And, and they argued that, you know, if we fail to develop the game to international uh, standards, you know, our opponents, their perceived opponents in this case, might use the game, you know, to mobilize people and rise against Kaunda's government. So they really built on this and uh, made sure that, you know, uh, the success of the national team, uh, which was uh, called the KK11, was also seen as the success and uh, in terms of the performance of uh, the UNIP government. And remember, Kaunda and his United National Independence Party promised the citizens good life after independence. They will live basically like their um, European colonizers, the way they were living. They'll be very comfortable and everyone will be happy. Uh, the mid-1970s, uh, people were starting to realize that these promises were not being fulfilled and uh, people started kind of complaining and were, you know, becoming agitated. And the game was used by uh, the UNIP government as, as, as kind of an example, a public example of, of showing what independence could bring to the people and, and the satisfaction of seeing a team as a nation and the success of the team projecting kind of, you know, one of the major achievements that um, the, the Kaunda government uh, brought with independence. There's also a downside to that, of course, because by the 1980s, the Zambian economy uh, is in free fall, largely as a result of the fall of copper prices, but also the imposition of forms of structural adjustment and so on. And, and the Kaunda government continues to invest in football when there is no money for basic necessities. And you point out, you know, food and medicine. But the team gets the resources. And in 1988, Zambia defeated Italy in the Olympic Games uh, in South Korea with a whopping 4-0 victory. And in a way, you know, what you're saying is that that strategy kind of worked to distract the masses, in a sense, from the unfolding economic crisis, or at least give them partial relief uh, with this international victory, uh, but at what cost? So it's a very interesting uh, analysis. If I may just add on top of that, mm. um, the success, I mean, the massive investment that uh, Kaunda put in into football after independence, influencing the parastatal corporations to invest in the game. The fruits of this investment uh, started showing in the mid 1970s with Zambia coming up second in Cairo, Egypt, uh, where they came second to Zaire, then now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that brought a lot of happiness to the people of Zambia and the success was visible and it projected Zambia actually as one of the, the major footballing nations in the, in, the, in the region, if not on the continent. This success built on and leading to the qualification to the 1988 Olympics, as you have mentioned, where uh, Zambia beat Italy. And, and that was, you know, despite, you know, the the, 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 the national economy starting falling down uh, from the mid-1970s as a result of the core, the fall rather of the copper prices. Uh, but, you know, Kaunda continued pumping in quite a lot of money through parastatal corporations into, into the game and the success was very visible. Despite, you know, all the other structures of country falling apart, but the success in, in, in football was very visible. And I think this kind of made the people happy in a way that, you know, the game was well supported and they, they won matches and they became one of the major footballing nations in the region. Now, during your research, you also discovered some interesting things about the role of mass media and fan culture, the use of 
magicians and magic and, and also some occasional violence at the ground. So I like the way in which you were not romanticizing this history. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of research that you did in the National Archives in Lusaka and also in the mining archives in Indola and also when you went to talk to people in their own homes or you met them um, privately? You know, what kind of sources did you discover and how did they guide your story? How did they inform it and shape it? I conducted, I spent actually quite a lot of time, over 18 months in, the, in, in, in uh, conducting archival and archival research and oral interviews in Zambia. Archival research was done uh, in the National Archives and the United National Independence Party or UNIP archive also, which is within Lusaka. And then I spent quite a lot of time in the mining and industrial archives uh, on the Copper Belt in Ndola. Uh, and in these archives, mostly I was uh, looking at uh, government and uh, mining records, reports, uh, welfare activities, correspondences and football clubs and, uh, and all the documents, governmental documents that dealt with, you know, uh, either the ministries running sports activities and social welfare. Apart from that, I visited a number of uh, football clubs, both in the Midlands, that is in the Lusaka area, in Livingstone, and on the Copper Belt. When I visited these clubs, um, I noticed that actually none of these clubs had old club records. So this made me uh, to uh, heavily rely on oral interviews. And, and I interviewed former football administrators, former football players, supporters of fans, and, and, and even relatives to, you know, key uh, either football administrators and, and, and supporters. I, I, I went across the country to, to follow, you know, these people wherever they could have gone engaged them to get um, their experiences. And, and this is what I really found uh, very interesting because most of these people, you know, um, their stories have been forgotten because maybe they, you know, they have retired, they've gone in some, some little village, probably where they're farming or they're in a small town somewhere. And a number of them were really excited to, to share th their experiences and, and, and kind of it, it, it brought old old memories and uh, and when I chatted with them I would go for example with you know maybe a, a newspaper article or one of the stories that related to their uh, previous performance and that kind of was very helpful to evoke their memories and they they become very enthusiastic and shared with me even you know some of their private um, collections of you know scrapbooks of maybe important football matches that they played teams that they played for and 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 major uh, football events that they were involved in so i found this very very interesting and of course i had i uh, it had its own challenges because for example i found it a bit challenging to access you know the highly uh, profiled individual. I would go through obstacles. Uh, for example, I struggled to meet um, the first football administrator, black football administrators in the, in the colonial era, uh, Tom Mutine, who actually led the National Football League when it was formed in 1962, uh, which actually made up was made up of both black and white people. He led uh, football from the 1960s, moving into the 1970s, up to the 1980s. So he's basically one of the major football administrators in the country. And, and it became very difficult, for example, to access such people because you find that they're, 
you know, they are well protected either by their sons because they are very old and, you know, uh, they want to protect them from all these political debates and uh, football politics that go on. They don't want them to be misquoted and then be, uh, hit big headlines. So uh, it was quite a challenge, but I, I was really privileged that I, I had chats with uh, highly profiled people like Tom Tine, Julia Sakala, Sakala, and great former football players like John Ginger Penslow, who played in the 1950s for the you know Northern Rhodesia uh, national team. Ginger Penslow actually emerged as a top scholar in 1961 when uh, the Northern Rhodesia, um, uh, no sorry, when the Copper Belt African football. Um, team toward Johannesburg uh, when they were inv invited by the Johannesburg Band to Football Association. Uh, so I was really privileged to talk to these big uh, legendary football players, also like uh, Dixon Makwaza, who captained the, the Zambia national team in the 1974 African Cup of Nations in Cairo. And, and so it was a great privilege, and I really enjoyed uh, to chat with them and, 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 and capture their, you know, they are mostly, you know, unheard uh, voices and experiences. And, and historically, coming to, to history itself, uh, as uh, I, I felt that my research came at the right time as there is a very big debate uh, um, surrounding moving away from, you know, the unique Kaunda-centered uh, history, uh, you know, to capturing the, the, the experiences of marginalized voices. And I feel that my research came at the right time uh, to capture, you know, the experiences of these masses and to, not only to capture their football experiences, but also, you know, part of the history of Zambia. One of the other interesting uh, aspects of your work, I think, was the way in which you um, transition into the um, post-Kaunda period, and you look at the way in which Frederick Chaluba approaches sports, and um, in some ways it's a, it's a different story um, but it also leads into perhaps today's tension between what we could call the culture of football and the commercialization of sport. Sure. I just wonder if you could speak a little to this more recent history from, sure. say, the 1990s onwards. So, whereas, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, the interesting part was that despite uh, the national economy, you know, falling apart as a result of, you know, the, co the fall of the, the copper prices on the international market, uh, President Kaunda continued supporting the development of the game. Because I remember uh, reading one of uh, the reports uh, from uh, when he was opening the, 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 the ZCCM Sports Festival where, you know, he was indicating that uh, whereas people are complaining that the economy is falling apart and uh, things are not going well, you know, there is hope. You know, we are enjoying the game and things are moving towards the right direction. I believe that also Kaunda was using this also to mask the, the suffering that was going on. But now as... As we move towards the 1990s, uh, Chiluba, with his new movement for multi-party democracy, or MMD, uh, they campaigned, gave the people hope that they were going to actually liberate the Zambian economy, firstly by reverting to multi-party democracy, democratize all the institutions, and, and as well, you know, liberalize the economy to make sure that it, it became a free economy, and, uh, and then, you know, they will retain the economic integrity of the country and bring hope to the people. So uh, as Chiluba was elected in 1991 as president, uh, he had already kind of entangled himself into these politics of liberalizing the economy and democratizing all 
political and, and, and social structures such as football, federations. Chiruba, because he promised the people you know, to liberalize the economy, it meant that he accepted to the donor communities pressure to fully implement the, the structural adjustment program. And that meant that you know, he lost control of the parastatal corporations that were really pumping a lot of resources in, in, in football structures. Apart from that, it meant that you know, he lost the autocratic kind of control that Kaunda had of uh, sports structures, of you know, influencing who would lead the, the, the sports structures. And that uh, led to Chiluba, despite you know, himself uh, having had been you know, born and bred on the copper belt and having had been the, even the patron for Nkana Red Devils, one of the old and major clubs on the copper belt and a serious football fan. Uh, when I interviewed Mwansa, um, who was uh, the, the chairperson for, for, for Nkana Red Devils in the 1980s, he actually told me that uh, we even had a seat that was permanently uh, set for Chiluba when Nkana Red Devils was playing uh, a home ground match in Kitwe. Uh, at, at this time when Chilwa was president for the Zambia Congress of Trade Unions. Despite Chilwa being a great uh, football enthusiast, he was unable to continue supporting the game at, at the level at which uh, Kaunda was, uh, firstly because you know the, the, the economy had fallen apart, and then secondly, the major parastatal corporations that were financing the game had been privatized and or were in the process of being privatized. So there was a decline in investment in the sport? That is correct, yes. Right. A serious decline in the investment, which actually led to the dilapidation of massive football infrastructure, stadiums and welfare structures that had been developed uh, during the Kaunda uh, regime. And as the parastatal corporations were in the process of being privatized, and withdrew the support that they gave to football clubs. It meant that you know a number of football uh, clubs disbanded or folded. And I, I recall some uh, copper companies being bought, for instance, by Canadian corporations, who That's may correct. have had rather less interest in soccer. That's correct. So yes. there was a yes. sort of uh, a ricochet effect here on on the, on the condition of of football under under this new. Um, uh, neoliberal regime. And with potentially, well, unfortunately with, with tragic consequences in the case of the fatal air crash of Gabon in 1993, right, when the Zambian national team had, was forced because of lack of resources to fly on an old military transport plane instead of a regular commercial airliner. And uh, uh, sadly, tragically, the, the plane went down just after takeoff and uh, Libreville killing the entire team and, and many of the support staff that were there. Uh, but your work ends on an uplifting note, not with the, with the tragedy of the national team dying in the air crash of 93, but with this brand new team that rises from the ashes uh, of 93 and ends up in the final of the African Nations uh, Cup. In 1994? That's correct, yes. In the uh, finals where we, we narrowly lost to Nigeria in Tunis, uh, where they beat us 2-1. It, it surprised everyone because the, the, the national team that perished was arguably one of the best uh, national teams the country has ever had. We were actually on the verge of qualifying um, to the World Cup for the very first time. And, and everything was promising. And I mean, there was no doubt that we were going to qualify. Surprisingly, you know, 
the, the new team, uh, you know, captained by Kalusha Gwali, of course, who himself was not on, on board on the plane that crashed because he was connecting from Holland. The newly uh, uh, formed national team performed very well, exceeding, you know, the expectations of all the citizens. And it, it acquired this new name as, you know, Chipolo Polo or Copa Bullets. No longer the KK-11, but Chipolo Polo, the... Copper bullets. Absolutely. And Chipo, I mean, um, well, politically... Expi- explain the meaning of that for the listeners. Why Chipolo Polo and why at that time? Why copper bullets? Yes, that's right. Uh, firstly, um, the old name, the KK-11, uh, politically had gone with Kaunda's removal from power in 1991. And Chiluba basically did not uh, want a lot of things that kind of, you know, really still continued to identify with uh, with Kaunda, there was a song that was sung during football competitions across the country uh, referring to Chipolo Polo. Chipolo Polo, basically, it's uh, bullets. The song was generally sung across the country during, all, during you know, football competitions. But after the Gabon air crash, the Amayenge band mm. uh, led by uh, Chris Charlie, one of the, the big... Um, bands in the country. Uh, so the, 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 the Amayenge band sang this uh, Chipolo Polo song for the new refurbished national team because they sang it even at the Independence Stadium and, you know, it was sung on radio and kind of it automatically, the name Chipolo Polo uh, came to be identified with the national team. The team that can pierce any defense. That right? is correct, yes. <laughs> now let's conclude with something more contemporary. Uh, you have a lot of experience in sport development in Southern Africa. You worked with uh, an NGO for several years, training coaches, uh, and then for the Supreme Council for Sport in Africa. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the key lessons of these experiences and also maybe explain what sport development and sport for development uh, are doing in the region? Uh, after my teaching, my high school teaching, then I uh, I worked for uh, a non-governmental organization called Sports Coaches Outreach, or in short known as SCORE, uh, which was uh, a regional sports for development organization. It was uh, it had a branch. The main head office was in Cape Town in South Africa, and it had a branch in Namibia and in Zambia. And I I spent uh, about two and a half years in South Africa. Um, working in the Limpopo province and in the Eastern Cape, where um, uh, in the Eastern Cape I was a team leader, a provincial team leader, supporting group of uh, international sports uh, volunteers implementing community sports development programs. And, and this uh, involved creating sustainable community sports structures uh, where, you know, we would train sports leaders and coaches. And at the same time, apart from training them, uh, in sports skills would also uh, train them in uh, teaching young people life skills, such as, you know, how to prevent uh, the transmission of HIV and AIDS and, and many other activities. And later on, I moved to Zambia and uh, took over from a colleague who was running the project there and became a country coordinator uh, implementing similar projects. And, and basically, the, the uh, sports for development, basically in this case, entailed uh, using sport as a tool to mobilize people to share with them either health or education or development programs and knowledge. We taught young people quality sports activities 
But within those quality sports activities, we also brought in life skills. It's a difficult balance because the kids want to play sports. They don't want to listen to lectures. It's a, it's a very difficult line to walk. There are few organizations that are able to do so successfully. But those who do, I think, do very good work. Now, that's very different from what you were doing with the Supreme Council for Sport in Africa. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, as you correctly pointed out, Professor Lake, the balance is very, very difficult. You would find, you know, one organization maybe balances more on life skills because probably that's where the, most of the funding is coming from. And that is kind of really um, uh, affecting the young people because they want to play. And then you find that, you know, 60 percent or 70 percent of their uh, activity uh, of their time is taken to you know life skills and they don't like it because I mean they some of them are maybe given these life skills at school at home and, and and then you are busy again pumping them with the same activities yet they want to have fun and yet others would maybe you know do less of life life skills and dwell more on on on, on quality sports and and the balance is very very difficult and very complex uh, when I finished my master's studies in in, in Oslo and uh, got a job with the Supreme Council for Sports in Africa, Zone 6. Then I was uh, a sports education and accreditation systems manager where um, I was tasked to develop uh, a regional sports education and accreditation system, basically because if you look at most of the countries uh, in Africa, and particularly in Southern Africa where um, I come from, countries do not have a sports education framework. So you find that sports education is very haphazard. Someone can just come maybe from any European country and comes and coaches uh, young people, maybe volleyball, and then gives them a, a coaching certificate. And, and they say, no, I qualify you to be, you know, maybe qualified coaches, uh, level one coaches. Uh, another one comes from a different place, also brings their own training material and comes and says, no, I've trained you, you are now level two. Basically, when you look at the, uh, the sports education that is being offered to the people in almost all the countries, is very haphazard. Uh, there is no quality assurance. And as a result, you find there is a lot of people who have massive experience in sports, coaching, and administration, but they don't have, and you cannot clearly understand what their qualifications are and what the, at what level they are at. And it becomes very difficult to give them the due credit simply because they have probably attended several coaching uh, workshops or uh, sports administration trainings, which has not given them any accredited or harmonized qualification that can be internationally recognized. So uh, my job was to work with the 10 countries where I was engaging um, respective governments. Uh, we formed a committee where we're developing this generic education uh, and accreditation framework uh, in line with uh, the international education framework like the International Council for Coach Education, etc. So it was a very challenging but very, very interesting interesting job. And the challenge is ongoing. The challenge is ongoing, mm. that's correct, yes. Well, thank you for giving us so many keen insights into the past and present of, uh, of, of football in Africa. And um, the weekend looms and we can all go off and, and watch some, some soccer except for Peter Alegi, who's pulled a, a muscle, kicking too many goals. And Igabo, who's traveling back to Lusaka. And we wish you a, a, a very pleasant and uh, uh, successful trip back to Lusaka. And thank you uh, once again for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure uh, being invited here, and, um, and I appreciate you know, the discussion.
Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.